Hello all, welcome to 51st episode of Snippets. I am Dr. Komal, resident in Shankaritrale, Chennai and your host for the episode. So as we embrace and battle second wave of COVID-19, we have witnessed a sudden surge of mucomycosis associated with COVID-19 infection. It has created a havoc amongst all. It has been declared an epidemic in many parts of the country. So let's get a better insight of COVID-associated mucomycosis. And for this, we have with us Dr. Sonam Nasar, who's associate consultant in the Department of Orbit and Oculoplasty at Shankar Netralaya, Chennai. She has a special interest in ocular trauma, aesthetics, ocular prosthesis. She'll be sharing her knowledge and expertise about COVID-associated mucomycosis. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you, Komal. So, mucomycetes are basically moles that dwell throughout the environment. They are ubiquitous. They are present in the soil, in the plants, in the air, and even harbor within one's nasal cavity. So, humans are generally exposed to these moles on daily basis, but they do not get infected because uh, this fungus actually has a quite low virulence. The incidence of mucomycosis is more higher amongst the immunocompromised group. It is more commonly seen in diabetes, patients receiving chemotherapy, malignancy, post-transplantation, or patients who are on long-term steroids, immunosuppressants, or neutropenia. Approximately 60 to 80% of cases that have been reported till date, pre-COVID, have been reported in patients who are diabetics with ketoacidosis. By now, we all know mucomycosis is a type of fungal infection, popularly termed as black fungus. Can you tell us more about it? So, mucomycosis can be classified based on the anatomical location. It can have a pulmonary, cutaneous, gastrointestinal, disseminated, atypical forms of mucomycosis, or the one that has been treated to have the highest morbidity and mortality, that is the ROCM, that is the rhinoorbital cerebral mucomycosis. and this is what we'll be discussing more in detail today about so approximately how many cases would we see on an average annually in the pre covid era so komal pre covid we were barely seeing about 3 to 4 cases annually okay and these are more commonly seen in patients who have uncontrolled diabetes or on some kind of a long term immunosuppression or any post organ transplantation Yes we did see a couple of isolated cases in the first wave or post first wave of covid-19 but we are seeing an exponential increase in patients who are getting affected with mucomycosis during or after recovering from covid-19 infection we are seeing patients coming in as early as within 3 to 7 days of being detected or rt pcr positive for covid So this wave we are witnessing a sudden surge in the number of covid associated mucomycosis what do you think are the factors responsible for this so it is an amalgamation of multiple factors which includes the pre existing diabetes mellitus status injudicious use of intravenous steroids and tocilizumab which might be necessary in moderate to severe covid in order to reduce the pulmonary inflammation a longer duration of icu stay or mechanical ventilation cross contamination of the medical supplies oxygen tubing and to top it up covid-19 infection by itself has an affinity towards the endothelial cells in the pancreas and causes insulin resistance and further increase in the blood sugar levels 
in pre-diabetics as well as diabetics who actually have a good control with medication. So all these have an increased risk of mucormycosis amongst patients recovering from COVID-19. I understand we, as ophthalmologists, play a quite vital role in the management of rhino-orbital cerebral mucormycosis, that is ROCM. How can we catch infection early and what are the danger signs of mucormycosis? In order to understand the signs and symptoms, we must know a little bit more about the etiopathogenesis. So, how does it spread? It basically spreads uh, by inhalation of the fungal spores or cornelia. Also, traumatic inoculation into the nasal mucosa has been described. What happens next is, these spores directly invade the blood vessels and induce an inflammatory reaction inciting a thromboembolic phenomena, which in turn causes tissue infarction, ischemia, necrosis and bone destruction. The classical hallmark sign of mucormycosis is blackening of the tissues or the eschar that is seen over the skin and this is secondary to the ischemic necrosis. The angio-invasive nature of the disease and the thromboembolic phenomena can cause vision-threatening complications like a CRAO or a CST that is a central retinal artery occlusion or cavernous sinus thrombosis. Let's understand the disease better. The ROCM basically originates from the paranasal sinuses and then slowly invades into the medial or the inferior orbit via the thin lamina papracea or the inferior orbital fissure. From here on, it can extend posteriorly to involve the orbital apex, the superior orbital fissure and can finally go into the brain parenchyma and the cavernous sinus. It can also involve the infratemporal fossa, the cheek, the palate and the teeth. It is important to know this in order to understand or assess the extent of involvement based on the clinical features. If you only have a rhinofacial involvement, the patient might present to you only with a nasal congestion, stuffiness, darkish brown discharge or blood tinge discharge, facial swelling or uh, numbness around the face or tooth pain or jaw pain. If the orbit is involved, you'll have features like complete ophthalmoplegia, ptosis, retrobulbar ache. If we have the disease which is going into the brain, the patient might complain to you with ipsilateral headache, confusion, vomiting, altered sensorium, seizures or even hemiparesis. So as an ophthalmologist in a clinical setup, we might come across a patient who has a recent history of COVID, might have received any systemic steroids or toclizumab, maybe having pre-existing diabetes mellitus or has had a long tenure in the hospital. If these kind of patients present to you with a partial or complete ptosis, partial or complete ophthalmoplegia, pupil may be normal or might be mid-dilated fixed not reacting to light associated with a sudden drop of vision, fundus picture might be normal or have features suggestive of a CRAO like a cherry red spot and a pale looking retina. We must have a very, very high index of suspicion of mucormycosis in these patients. So based on the ophthalmic features that you just described, we might often confuse it with a probable orbital cellulitis or a cavernous sinus syndrome. How can we confirm the diagnosis of mucormycosis? So next, we send the patient immediately for an imaging. Magnetic resonance imaging scan, that is an MRI scan of the brain, orbit and the sinuses 
with contrast is the gold standard of imaging in this condition. CT scan can be done with contrast when MRI is not available. MRI is superior because it gives us a better delineation of the soft tissue changes. Contrast is extremely important because it helps us differentiate between the normal and the necrotic tissues. It aids in early detection of the cavernous sinus thrombosis or vital ischemic changes, hence aids in the planning of the surgical intervention from our side. The patient is next referred to an ENT surgeon for a diagnostic nasal endoscopic evaluation who assesses the nasal cavity. We must look for any nasal mucosal edema, pale mucosa, early ulceration, necrosis and eschar. It is also the preferred site to take the initial biopsy to confirm the diagnosis under topical or local anesthesia without wasting much time of the patient. The swab from the nose or the palate or the nasal biopsy is immediately examined on a KOH mount. The presence of branched aseptic hyphae confirms the diagnosis of mucomycosis. Unlike other fungi, Mucor is a rapidly growing fungus and can be seen growing on the seborrhodextrous agar media within 24 to 48 hours. It looks like fluffy white cotton candy appearance and finally becomes grey to brown in colour after 3 to 4 days. A polymerase chain reaction on the tissue can also be done in order to identify the specific mucorel as well. Molecular analysis can also be done, however, that's more time-consuming and expensive as well. The tissue must also be sent for histopathological examination. It gives us significant information regarding the presence of any angioinvasion, perineural spread, tissue infarction, or necrosis. Special stains such as periodic acid shift stain, that is a past stain, or the Gomori methamine silver stain and the calcoflower white stain all confirm the presence of the broad aseptic branched hyphae confirming the diagnosis of a mucomycosis as well. Once we've confirmed the diagnosis of mucomycosis, we must also perform complete blood profile, renal functional tests, liver functional tests, as well as IgGM and IgG antibodies for COVID in order to proceed with the further surgical planning. Once diagnosed, how do we proceed? What are the management options? COVID-associated mucomycosis is highly fatal and should be treated as an acute emergency. It requires a multidisciplinary approach and the team should involve an ENT surgeon, a neurosurgeon, oculoplastic or an ophthalmic surgeon, maxillofacial surgeon and an infectious disease specialist or a physician to monitor antifungals. Remember, we as ophthalmologists or an oculoplastic surgeon are never the primary caregivers for this condition. The principles of management are quite simple. First, strict glycemic control, reduce steroids, discontinue immunomodulators. Next, extensive and aggressive debridement of the necrotic tissue to reduce the fungal load and for better penetration of systemic antifungals. Start antifungals immediately if you have an, a high index of suspicion. Close monitoring to look for clinical progression or resolution of the disease because this is one condition wherein the imaging lags behind the clinical presentation. Intravenous preparations are preferred over oral preparations as they have a higher efficacy and act faster. Liposomal amphotericin B is the drug of choice for the treatment of mucomycosis. 
it has a higher plasma concentration and is safer in terms of therapeutic efficacy and safety compared to its other forms it crosses the blood brain barrier and hence is very effective for cerebral mucormycosis the dose of liposomal amphor would be 5 mg per kg per day for 3 to 6 weeks depending on the clinical progression if the cns is involved then the dose is hiked up to 10 mg per kg per day in case of unavailability of liposomal amphor which we are facing quite a lot as of now we can also use amphotericin b deoxycholate form the dose of the same would be 1 to 1.5 mg per kg per day for 3 to 6 weeks also we can adjuvant with other antifungal drugs such as triazoles like posaconazole or isvaconazole these inhibit the growth of fungus and are also promising as an adjunctive drug it is given as a first line drug in patients with pre existing renal compromise the dose of posaconazole is 300 mg iv or oral on day 1 and then 300 mg once a day for 3 to 6 weeks isavuconazole is a broad spectrum antifungal with a good safety profile and the dose for the same is 200 mg iv or oral thrice a day on day 1 and 2 and 200 mg iv or oral from day 3 what form of local therapy can patient be given for ocular involvement local therapy with retrobulbar injection of deoxycholate amphotericin b has also been described in literature though there is no major prospective study but isolated case reports wherein systemic antifungals were contraindicated have shown the use of retrobulbar injections to be quite useful the dose is 3.5 mg per dl you can give 1 to 2 cc into the medial conal space or where the lesion is maximum amphotericin b irrigation has also been described in literature with limited use the dose for the same would be 1 to 2.5 mg per dl however it is important to remember that this retrobulbar injection itself can cause further inflammation and compartment syndrome hence this must be explained to the patient in advance what is the prognosis of a patient with rocm so the prognosis depends upon the extent of the disease if it has already spread to the brain and there is an underlying brain abscess or a cranial involvement then the prognosis is very poor and there is a high mortality however if the disease is limited to the paranasal sinuses then the prognosis is very good orbit is an interim stage and this is where we as ophthalmologists and oculoplastic surgeons come into picture to decide whether we need to excentrate or not to excentrate or not is a million dollar question it depends upon the amount of orbital involvement and the extent of necrosis within the orbit if there is extensive necrosis within the orbit it's a sign of poor viability and the systemic antifungals might not really reach and do the job Hence, excentration will help in clearing all the infected necrotic material, and also improve the penetration of the drug. If the orbital apex is involved, then it is an urgent indication for excentration. Or if there is an impending involvement of the orbital apex, this is because the intracranial extension is going to take place through the cribriform plate or the orbital apex. Hence, an excentration at this stage will prevent or can prevent an intracranial extension of the disease. Uh, there is a grey area many people advocate that when there is already an intracranial extension 
Exenteration reduces the fungal load and hence the systemic antifungals can act better improving the outcome whereas many believe that this will not actually affect the outcome. Hence it is subjective and one should decide on patient basis whether the patient needs exenteration or not. Loss of vision, complete ophthalmoplegia and ptosis is not an indication for exenteration. So how regular should a patient be followed up? So because it's a fungal infection, the treatment and follow-up is much longer as compared to a bacterial or a viral infection. Follow-up has to be periodic because antifungals are given for a minimum of 4-6 to six weeks and then extended based on the clinical improvement. Antifungals can be continued as long as up to 3 months as well. What all precautions can we take to prevent mucomycosis post-COVID? Mucomycosis can be prevented by having a strict glycemic control, a judicious and supervised use of systemic steroids and toclizumab in patients infected with COVID-19. We must monitor for early signs and symptoms of mucomycosis even after recovery from COVID or as early as even 2-3 to three days after being tested positive for COVID. It is very important to maintain a personal hygiene and wear a barrier mask. Sterile water for humidifiers and frequent change of sterilized humidifiers and tubing also must be done. Thank you ma'am for sharing your valuable knowledge and covering the topics so extensively. We hope that it was helpful and you enjoyed the session. Do subscribe to our channel and stay tuned.